Our scripture this morning comes uh, from the ninth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, verses 1 through 19. It is the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so, if they found any, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what, what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered him, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many men about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings, before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. This is God's good word for us, God's beloved people. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, Sir Elton John was not born a sir nor was he born Elton John. Uh, his birth name is Reginald Dwight. Uh, for the first uh, 20 years of his life, uh, he went by the name Reggie. Um, he later uh, coined himself Elton John. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in a minute. He is by far one of the most successful recording artists in history, having sold hundreds of millions of albums. Uh, he absolutely blew up and dominated the 70s, a decade I was not alive for, but I am told was fantastic. Uh, he is known uh, for his uh, wild and uh, flamboyant onstage persona, uh, his sparkly glasses, his sequined everything. Uh, but here's a fun fact. Uh, those glasses he is wearing in that picture from 1975, it's just glass. There's no prescription. Uh, when he first started out as a musician, he had 20-20 vision. Now he's in his 70s. No doubt he needs actual glasses now. 
uh, but he started wearing glasses uh, in his in his 20s, not because he needed them, but because they thought he made he thought they made him look like Bill Bill Haley, uh, one of his musical icons. And so he, this is all this is all a part of his stage persona, down to the fact that he's wearing glasses. He doesn't need glasses. He's also been uh, made a knight of the realm uh, by Queen Elizabeth. So he is properly and legally, now he did legally change his name from Reginald Dwight, uh, to Sir Elton Hercules John, which fits this over-the-top, flamboyant, joyous persona who experienced a lot of success fairly early in his life. It didn't start out so easy. And that on-stage joyous exuberance covers up for the fact that he has lived a life that has involved a fair amount of pain. And the album that uh, today's song comes from, so today's song is Someone Save My Life Tonight, which apparently is the hardest song that Elton John ever made to play. Well, band does great anyways comes from an album called uh, Mr. Fantastic and the Dirt Brown Cowboy. And this is an autobiographical album uh, written by him and his writing partner. His writing partner, Bernie Taupin, uh, they've been, part they've been uh, artistic partnership for 50 years. Um, they have, you know, uh, they have been working together since 1967 uh, when they first met. But this is an album that Bernie writes the lyrics um, and Elton writes the music where Bernie has written lyrics that are autobiographical, that tell the story of their early days as struggling artists uh, from 1967 when they met uh, to 1970 when Elton kind of emerged fully formed on to the musical scene. And their writing process for this album, as any of the albums they ever did, is unique. So Elton uh, does the music, but first Bernie goes away by himself and writes the lyrics not consulting with Elton at all. And then Bernie mails or sends um, the lyrics to Elton, and then Elton, not talking to Bernie, composes the music to go with it, and the, the, you know, the, you know, guitar chord, the guitar part and the, the piano chord progressions and all of that. And then finally, when Elton has paired the lyrics, and sometimes he cuts some lyrics, they don't fit the music, um, he plays the song for Bernie, and that completes the writing process. And so that's how this one happened to, that Bernie, knowing the struggles that both of them had in their early days, wrote this album and wrote this song, Someone Save My Life Tonight, sent that over to Elton, Elton composed the music for it, and then it emerged as the songs that we know. And Someone Save My Life Tonight tells the story of a particularly dark patch that Elton hit in this early life, circa about 1968. 1968, Elton um, and Bernie and Elton's fiance, Linda, are all living in a rundown flat on the east end of London, which was kind of London's more rundown end. It's largely gentrified now. My brother used to live like four streets over from this. It's fine now, but it wasn't fine in the you know, late 60s. In 1968, the east end of London was rough. 
And so they're living there, and Elton, Elton's in this relationship with this woman that is not a life-giving, healthy relationship. It really just was not working. He felt very trapped and pained um, by the fact that they were on a journey towards marriage, and he did not want to do that, but he also didn't know how to get out. And he was you know, away from home. He was only 21 years old. He hadn't lived away from home before, and his musical career just wasn't going the way it needed to. And so one night... Elton John decided to kill himself, decided to commit suicide. And he was in the process of committing suicide when guess who came from the downstairs flat up to the upstairs flat? His writing partner, Bernie. And so it is Bernie that stopped the suicide attempt, that allowed Elton to live. And then it was another one of their friends, a guy named Long John Bowery, uh, who also journeyed alongside Elton. That Bernie and Long John and Elton helped put Elton back together. So the someone saved my life tonight in the song is literal. It is the story of, the, of being trapped in this apartment, of being trapped in that relationship, of wanting to die, and of someone literally saving his life tonight. And that Long John Bowery, that guy got the nickname Sugar Bear. Poor guy. But that's the, when, you, when you hear the song and there's all this echoing Sugar Bear, no, that's not a weird drug reference. That is a nickname for Long John Bowery. We had to look this up. We look up all of this stuff before and we had to look it up. Um, that's Long John Bowery's nickname. Also, Long John Bowery gets another tribute um, in Elton John's life. I mentioned that Elton John, born Reginald Dwight, became Elton John. The John in Elton John is in honor of Long John Bowery. Um, that's where he got the John from. Elton was one of Elton John's early guitarists uh, in a previous band. And so when he wanted to form a new stage name, apparently in England in the 60s and 70s, you couldn't perform as Reginald Dwight. Sounds fine to me now. But apparently he wanted to be something else. And so when he named himself Elton Hercules John, uh, the John is in honor of Long John Bowery. And so I'll read just a little bit of the song, and you'll hear echoes of London's East End, of these people who saved his life, and Sugar Bear, Long John Bowery. When I think of those East End lights, muggy nights, the curtains drawn, and the little room downstairs, prima donna lord, you really should have been there, sitting like a princess perched in her electric chair, and it's one more beer, and I don't hear you anymore. We've all gone crazy, my friends out there rolling round the basement floor. And someone saved my life tonight. Sugar bear, sugar bear. Eventually, Elton's parents showed up in a van to take him home. Through the counsel of Bernie and Long John, Elton broke off the unhealthy relationship with Linda, and that allowed his music career to take off because he could get to a healthy place. He actually lived at home for a little while longer. He put up several albums that were successful before he moved away from home again, but home was a place of safety and peace for him. He had these friends who'd come around him to help guide him and shape him, that these people who saved his life, his parents and Bernie and Long John, really did save his life that night and going forward. And Elton John is here today as Elton John, as Sir Elton Hercules John, because these people waded in to the darkest moment in Reginald Dwight's life and saved him through the love that they poured into him. 
And this is where that story, the story of someone saved my life tonight, the story of Elton and Bernie and Long John, plays right into what is actually happening in Acts chapter 9 as Paul goes on this road to Damascus. Because we, as Christians, we are guilty over and over again of jumping always to the end of the story. We love the end of the story where Paul comes out fully formed as this amazing evangelist, as this determined and dogged uh, preacher of, of the gospel, of this like amazing writer that writes like whatever, 40% of the New Testament, right? We love Paul. I love Paul. Paul's fantastic. But at the start of this story, Paul is absolutely headed for self-destruction. He is on a self-destructive path. He is caught in a really dark pattern, and he's about to bring a whole lot of people down with him if someone does not stop him. Because Paul is fantastic, absolutely fantastic at following God. But Paul starts off on a really misguided place, uh, picking up uh, verses... Rereading of verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he, could, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul has decided that the thing God really needs him to do is murder Christians. This is the goal. He is present at the, the martyrdom of Stephen, where a whole bunch of people throw rocks at Stephen until Stephen dies. Paul gets to be coat holder. He's like, no, 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 don't mess up your coats. I'll hold the coats. I'll watch the coats. Here are the rocks. Go kill that guy. And he approves of the killing. Paul, steeped in the school of the Pharisees, knows the scripture far better than any of us ever will, but has got this misguided idea that that means he needs to drive Christianity out. And so as he is on this road to Damascus bearing the murder letter from the high priest saying that he can bind and return any followers of Christianity, that means he can have them killed, he's going the wrong way. He's going the wrong way fast. And it's going to lead to his own destruction. And a lot of people could die along the way. And one person, Stephen, is already dead. And so it is in this moment of an absolutely self-destructive and dangerous-to-others pattern that inbreaks Jesus with this blinding flash of light and this reminder of why are you persecuting me? Why are you who claim, who seek so much to do what God wants you to do? How have you been altered and so drawn astray that you are persecuting me, Jesus Christ, Lord of all? And Paul is struck blind. And then normally, when we tell this story, we then just jump to the end. And then Paul gets baptized. Yay! And that happens. But there's this intermediary step. Yes, Jesus starts the process of saving Paul's life, as Jesus starts the process of saving anybody's life. But then someone else had to step up and do some of the work. Someone had to step up and save Paul's life that day. A Christian needed to get involved to be the hands and feet of God in that moment. And that Christian's name is 
Ananias. And Ananias' story uh, plays out, uh, particularly in verses 15 through 17. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It took a lot for Ananias to do that. Not just because he, like, you know, got interrupted while he was praying, got sent to help a guy he didn't know. As Ananias reveals in the verses immediately before that, God says, okay, go save Paul. And Ananias goes, I've heard of Paul. Paul's trying to kill us. Paul killed Stephen. Paul's trying to kill us. Are you, are you sure about this? And that's when God says, go. I need him. And Ananias says, okay, I'll do it. But think about that for a second. Paul is their dead, at that point, we know what Paul becomes. Ananias doesn't know what Paul becomes. Ananias knows what Paul is in that moment. And what Paul is in that moment is their deadly enemy who's already killed somebody and wants to kill more people. And so what Ananias is being told is not just like, go help this guy you don't know. It is, go enter the room where the guy who wants you dead is lay your hands on him, give him back his sight so he can see you. That's what I need you to do. And Ananias has far more spiritual maturity than I can ever claim to have. Ananias does with only a little bit of objection, which I think we all should agree is reasonable. Sometimes, even with God, it's okay to ask a couple clarifying questions. A lot of times in the Bible, it goes, God gives an order, and the person goes, are you sure? And you don't get zapped for that. You can, like, eventually you do then have to go do it, but you get at least one, are you sure, oh Lord. And Ananias uses his one, are you, you sure about this? But then he does it. Shows amazing spiritual maturity. To go into the house where your deadly enemy is. Heal him in the name of God and have the faith that God is going to do something in that moment. But this is also how Ananias plays this role in saving Paul's life. Because indeed, Paul's life, Paul's soul, and the direction of Christianity for the future is saved in that moment. And verses 18 and 19 drive home how complete the transformation really is. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. He is baptized. He is welcomed in. He is restored. The scales fell from his eyes. But that is in no small part because of what Ananias, in his bravery, in his spiritual maturity, in his love of neighbor, even when that neighbor was not particularly loving, was willing to do that like Bernie and Long John for Elton, Ananias plays that same role for Paul to go in, to show incredibly deep love and to get him pointed 
in the direction that he needed to go. That's the story of Paul. It's not just a miraculous vision from Jesus, although that certainly didn't hurt. It took a Christian being willing to love in an extraordinary and risky and inconvenient way to save Paul's life. I imagine it was at night. It was definitely not at night. It was probably during the day. But say it fits the song, save Paul's life that night. And so on one side of this, there's a lesson for all of us as Christians about the actual nature of Christian love. And that is, the actual nature of Christian love is risky and inconvenient. When someone calls you in crisis, it does not fit into your schedule. Literally, my X percentage of my job is dealing with people in crisis. It does not fit my schedule. And that's part of my job. I can only imagine what it is to not be a full-time. I've almost forgotten what it's like to not be a full-time pastor. I'll confess that. I don't quite remember what it's like to be a normal human anymore. But I can imagine if it is hard enough on my schedule uh, to deal with people in crisis, I can imagine what it's like for y'all who have like other jobs and other lives and things. It's not convenient. Person having the worst day of their life seldom fits your calendar. A person in deep need can seldom make an appointment of when they're finally going to hit rock bottom. And yet we are called to love. And also that people don't always look the way you want them to, smell the way you want them to, act the way they want them to. You know, often a person who's hit rock bottom, you know, looks a little nuts for one reason or another. And so there's an element of risk in engaging with that. But sometimes that's exactly what we are called to do to love in ways that don't fit our schedule, to love people that don't, forget, fit, don't fit our ideal image of people we should love. They don't smell right. They don't look right. They act crazy. They talk crazy. Whatever. It feels risky, right? That's usually a good sign you're on to something. If this does not fit your schedule and feels kind of risky, then it takes the love of God moving in you to do it because on your own you would go, nah, I ain't got time for you, or mm, I'm, fr I'm afraid. But you overcome that by the power of God moving you as Ananias overcame that in the power of God loving him. Ananias was having his daily prayer time. Ananias probably needed to do, I don't know, whatever Roman people did in Damascus. He had things to do. He had a to-do list, and he was told, told to go love the guy that was trying to kill him, and he did it. Christian love is inconvenient and risky and is exactly what we are supposed to be ready to do. To put aside our own priorities for the sake of God's love and step out in faith to love another even if they don't look or act particularly lovable. That's how we save people's lives. But the other piece of it is the life you save may be your own. The life you save may be your own. In letting God's love move through you, you may also find God's love. In loving in an amazing way, Ananias opened the world to the work of Paul the Apostle. Who knew, right? Ananias certainly ended up getting a whole lot out of Paul's ministry as we all did. Ananias ended up helping himself as much as he helped Paul, but he had no idea that's what was going to happen. All he did was open himself up to God's love. 
When you open up yourself to God's love flowing through you, you may build a relationship that then returns that love. That when you love someone in an inconvenient and risky way, they may then love you back in an inconvenient and risky way when you have need of that. Turns out that the kingdom of God is built on us building relationships. Kingdom of God is not a building, is not a place. It is us. And it is us connecting with each other. And when you save someone's life, you may open yourself up to have your life saved in turn someday. So friends, let's go out there and save some lives. Let's go out there and save some lives. As I'm telling you, friends, there are lives that need saving right now. We live in a deeply disconnected, deeply depressed age. There are lives that need saving. There are people that need loving. And certainly I have been exactly one of those in my life. I am here today because I had my own version of Bernie and Long John and Ananias. Their names are Brian and Heidi. As a deeply depressed teenager, I was often in deeply rough shape. I am by no means perfect now, but I was in deeply rough shape multiple times as I was coming up. As a 17-year-old, after I tried to kill myself, I wondered, would anyone put up with me ever again as depressed? And that was the only, when you're deeply depressed, that's often the only thing you can talk about. I was pretty lousy company, and yet Brian and Heidi took the time and stuck it out with me and loved me and put up with me and helped rebuild me over months. When I got dumped flat by the woman that I thought I was going to marry and my whole world was upended at the age of 20, Brian spent our entire Christmas break playing the same terrible video game, Wacky Racers for the Dreamcast, a game that I guarantee you no one else besides me in this room has ever heard of. It was not a well-known game, but Brian played it with me every day for three weeks to listen to help me find myself again. And six months after that, I, I asked Sydney out. And eight months after that, I accepted my call to ministry. But none of that would have been possible if Brian hadn't sat with 19-year-old me and played that same terrible game that I know now must have annoyed the bejesus out of him. But he gave up his entire Christmas break, our first December home from college, to sit every day and play a terrible video They saved my life because they loved me in wildly inconvenient ways that they gave deeply of themselves. And so I know what it felt like to be Elton John, surrounded by Long John and Bernie and his parents. And I can imagine a little bit of what it was like to be Paul, to have this person who had no reason to love him come in and be a part of God transforming his life. I know the impact that it can have. I have felt it in my own life. I just pray that we as the kingdom of God, we as Christians can do it again to go out and save people's lives by showing love, by loving in ways that don't make sense and loving that ways that are not necessarily good for us, that don't fit our schedule, that are risky. Because there's an epidemic of loneliness and depression and disconnection out there in the world. And in our hearts right now, in this room right now, is the antidote that we need 
the Holy Spirit, the love of God moving through Christians like Ananias, moving through Christians like you and I. Let us pray. Gracious, loving God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the ways your love moves in us. We give you thanks for the times and places where you have been, you have saved our lives. But God, we pray that you convict in us, that you move in us, that you empower in us to love in that same way, to be an Ananias for someone else, to save someone's life by the power of your love working through us. Loving God, may we be a people who are also offering your life-saving love, your life-saving grace, your life-saving hope and transformation. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. And as advertised, friends, I now present to you the 1975 uh, single, uh, Someone Saved My Life Tonight, from the album uh, Mr. Fantastic and the Dirt Brown Cowboy. I do want to note that I love this band dearly, but one of the things that they go through as part of Summer of Rock, and particularly this Summer of Rock, is they are covering artists and genres who are some of the greatest, and we have truly wonderful musicians. So I give to you an edited um, and perhaps incomplete, uh, but still wonderful um, version of Someone Saved My Life Tonight by Sir Elton Hercules John. need all y'all's participation on this but uh, just listen to this beautiful piano listen to the guitar players everything it's it's amazing so just uh, please please help along for us here Muggy nights, curtains drawn in the little room downstairs. Dream of all our lords who've really been there, sitting like a princess perched in her electric chair. And it's one more beer, and I don't hear you anymore. We've all gone crazy lately, our friends out there. in me, didn't you, Jane? You nearly had me rope the tie. Altar bound in the tie, sweet freedom whispered in my ear, you're a butterfly. And butterflies, free to fly, fly away, fly away, fly by.
many showers to paint and in the dark my darkest dreams I'm struggling with complete social scene just upon Plato by dominating me and it's four o'clock in the morning dang it listen to me I invite you now to grab the hands of the people around you, form one united body in Christ, for that indeed is what we are. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. God's love is in you. God's love is in you to share. Go forth and save someone's life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.